0: Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Behind the Mask Driving Change. For the next few episodes, we are focusing on stories from carriers leading up to our Carrier Convention, which begins on June 17th. I'm your host, Rachel Kador, and today we are joined by Richard Manfield from Transped Europe, a leading specialist in European haulage. In addition to years of experience in the industry, Richard has a special knowledge of how Brexit has impacted shipping in Europe, which is definitely still a big topic today. So Richard, we're so glad to have you. Welcome to the show.
1: Thanks Rachel, thank you for your nice introduction. Um, I'm looking forward to uh, talking to you about Brexit, uh, given that I work in logistics and that I'm actually from the UK. Uh, Brexit has affected me not only professionally, but also personally. And it's something um, that I'm very passionate about. So hopefully we can have a good discussion.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, for a lot of people in shipping, when they think of Brexit, they just think of delays. Um, So I'm curious, from your perspective, what kind of delays did you observe and and how did people, whether from the UK or not, how did drivers and some subcontractors react, for example, when it was taking so long for T1 documents to arrive?
1: Absolutely. I mean, yeah, Brexit, certainly in the first few months, or at least in Q1 of, uh, of this year, 2021, uh, it became synonymous with the word delay. Um, and I think a lot of people who uh, who work in this industry would also agree with that. Um, it has got better, uh, but in the beginning, we, we saw a lot of delays, especially with collecting T1s. Um, I'm not sure if you're aware of the full process of that, but it, it is not exactly very easy. It, it involves obviously lodging your T1 dot, um, declaration through the NCTS system in the UK and then uh, it involves going to an inland border post or an inland border facility uh, to collect the document and initially this was really uh, the biggest bottleneck that that we saw um, from the customs side there were other bottlenecks to do with our clients but the biggest one that we saw from the customs side was collecting uh, T1s um, mainly because I think there seemed to be a backlog uh, within the NCTS system itself, so within the actual software in the UK, and it took a long time for these to get pushed through the software, and sometimes there were often mistakes and they had to be redone or edited, um, so sometimes our drivers, they were turning up at the inland border facilities and having to wait for up to 72 hours, uh, which if you imagine as a driver, that that's not really what you want to be doing, you want to be driving and covering kilometres. So yeah, this was really the the biggest problem that we had initially. Certainly, in most of January and I would say at least half of February, this was what we had to, to contend with was the waiting around at inland border facilities. Um, the main issue that we had really with uh, with Brexit, and maybe that brings us on to a, a later point, but it's uh, it was the lack of organisation and the the late hour of uh, of uh, of how the, the UK announced it so I think we only found out sort of three to four days before January um, 2021 how the, the um, border operating model was going to work so you know this sort of lateness um, is what caused all the problems we weren't sure if we were going to have to do uh, declarations we weren't sure if it's going to be postponed we weren't 100 percent sure what the process was and so if you if you add that to the problems we have with the NCTS system and with the waiting at inland border facilities for T1 documents it was. Uh, it was very challenging, yeah,
0: it sounds like there was just really no chance for people to prepare for brexit in the way that of course they would like to so so during that transition, we know when the when the clock struck twelve, so to speak, what sort of calls were you getting from people during that period
1: yeah i mean absolutely we we had it um <laughs> we had it fairly bad, um certainly for most of twenty twenty i mean Transport have been preparing for this since the beginning of 2019. Um, so we'd already had conversations with uh, the UK government, uh, with the EU Commission, also with uh, various customs agents around, around Europe and also in the UK. So we were prepared as we could be, but when you don't know exactly when, uh, this is going to come into force and in what uh, or in what stages it's going to come into force for example um you know do you have full declarations uh, duty deferment is that postponed etc cetera, etc cetera. um it wasn't very clear like I said, we only really found out what the actual border operating model was three to four days before the 1st of January 2021, so we didn't have much time to react. And obviously, if you imagine, most of us were on holiday in this period of time, so it was quite uh, it was quite tricky for us to react on that. Uh, so we had to be prepared in advance. Um, so whilst we were prepared, we were also trying to get our clients, so our customers prepared as well. And um, this is, I sort of really said that um, in terms of how people were prepared in the industry, we have three real topics for discussion. We have our clients, or our customers, uh, the border service and customs agents and then obviously our partners, our suppliers. For us obviously uh, our customers are the most important um, and we received a lot of phone calls I would say in Q3 and from Q3 on from mostly our UK customers. Um, though There was some phone calls from maybe small to medium enterprises in the EU but the larger companies we didn't really have any conversations with, they seem to have everything in place. But the the SMEs uh, in the UK needed a lot of support and I think it's basically because the same problem that we saw is there was no clarity uh, in when this was going to happen, if it was going to happen and what was going to happen. And what the consequences were for our customers so the kind of phone calls that we had just to give you a few examples were uh, how does the vat work for example what do we need on the commercial invoice when do you need the commercial invoice so in order for us to be able to make a a declaration we would need the commercial invoice um, really around the time of loading or just after the time of loading and a lot of the uh, the UK customers they didn't fully understand what was meant to be on the commercial invoice because they'd never been making these specific commercial invoices for um, for export uh, into a non-EU country or or from a non-EU country to an EU country. Um, so they weren't used to exactly what needed to be displayed. Things like Incoterms, for example. Um, Eori uh, numbers, um, exact packages, uh, so number of packages, um, the gross and net weights, uh, the value, for example, this, these things were things that they weren't 100% used to and they weren't sure how they should display it in order for us to be able to, to make the declaration. Um, so predominantly we were really discussing things like that. So um, also the process as well because a lot of these guys had uh, on-time deadlines or on-time KPIs for their customers and uh, my general opinion is that most of these were not met uh, if any uh, in in January because of the waiting times for uh, for T1 documents so
0: yeah that would sound almost challenge. impossible
1: <laughs> yes <laughs> absolutely yeah
0: Wow. yeah so a lot of a lot of detail oriented stuff a lot of, but it sounds like all all new sort of details coming out during this period so a lot of questions coming up mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. I wanted to ask also, so last year, in in anticipation of Brexit, customers had built up a lot of stock in the UK, which helped ease the situation when when trucks and drivers started to withdraw from some of these UK transports. Now, what do you see? Has a new balance been found? And and how is it uh, when you compare it to pre-Brexit times?
1: Yeah, I think it's a very good point, actually, Rachel. I think um, we need to look at it from two sides, though, because, yes, the UK uh, companies built up a lot of stock in the UK, but also UK companies exporting to the EU built up a lot of stock in the EU. Um, So it was kind of twofold. Um, We saw um, late uh, last year, so sort of uh, mid to end of Q4 in 2020, um, a lot of people importing more uh, than they would normally. free Christmas period into the UK and I, I guess they were holding stock uh, exactly like you said. A lot of this was um, for the building industry. Uh, we also saw a little bit for the automotive industry. We, we didn't see much with fresh produce because obviously you can't keep fresh produce for for long periods of time. Uh, and this is really, I think, the one that was hit the, hit the worst. Um, what we saw from some of our customers who were importing fresh produce from let's say from Spain or from uh, Italy uh, was that there was a lack of fresh produce and I think this was also mirrored in the UK that you were seeing things uh, missing from shelves in supermarkets for example bananas oranges these sort of things Um, things coming out of Italy yeah grapes uh, olive oil uh, perishables basically so I think that that the industry that was suffering was obviously the the uh, the food industry uh, the fresh produce industry the most. Um, building also, um, but um, what I found more interesting, um, certainly from my point of view, is companies exporting into the EU. So quite a lot of companies who are exporting into the EU were exporting more um, before the year because they knew there would be these bottlenecks uh, with customers' documents and also at, at the actual physical border um, themselves. So to avoid penalties for on-time delivery, uh, and on time in full delivery, they uh, they were sending more last year and asking their customers to hold stock. And uh, a lot of companies were changing the payment terms so the customer didn't have to pay immediately for this. And I think this was probably quite a good uh, a good solution. Also, companies that were practicing into company movements uh, were shipping more uh, than normal. And uh, for example, companies that were shipping medical products out to Spain were shipping to um, Germany and holding stock in Germany. Uh, and then because obviously it's easier to ship from Germany to Spain than it is to ship from the UK to to Spain, at least certainly uh, in early Q1 this year. So I I think that actually a lot of companies were well prepared for it and they they took the necessary steps to make sure that they had enough stock to cover that first period um, where it was a little bit chaotic earlier this year.
0: That's good to hear. So another another aspect to this is earlier in 2019 and 2020, a lot of shippers and, and also carriers um, expected intermodal transport to grow and resolve some of these challenges. Uh, how has that played out in real life and, and what do you think will happen with intermodal transport in the coming year or two? Or two? Ooh,
1: it's a it's a good one. <laughs> it's a very good question. I mean, as you may know, Transped, uh, we have a, a small intermodal fleet um, and it's something that we were pushing uh, and we still push um, a lot, uh, uh, certainly from um, from Italy to the scandinavics and also Italy to the UK. Um, yeah, I mean, in 2019 there was a lot of talk. Uh, I'm not sure how how accustomed to that you are, but there was a lot of talk about uh, how intermodal was going to grow to grow, and especially within the UK it might help solve a lot of the the bottlenecks that we see. Um, with road transport. However, I don't really think it played out like that. I think in the end, um, people still wanted to ship stuff by road. Um, Now, where you might ship, let's say from the UK to Italy, uh, it might take five days. Uh, Transit time by intermodal, well, it was taking five days by road. So there was no real advantage for using Using road over intermodal, and the capacity stayed the same because obviously you can only put a certain number of trucks on a train, and there's only a certain number of trains running. And I believe that these capacities weren't increased as much as we thought they were going to be, um, at least at the start of this year. So I'm not sure it was a uh, it helped that much with Brexit, but there is a very uh, a very big future for intermodal, and certainly in the next five to ten years, I think we will see uh, a real growth. Especially given that um, a lot of um, companies are put, are put under a lot of pressure with carbon emissions, um, I think that um, intermodal has become a very big topic for solving a lot of these carbon emission problems. And uh, certainly in some of the discussions that I've been involved with with F&L, um and also with colleagues within transport as well. Um, we're looking for the solutions now, which are more environmentally friendly. So we're looking at how we can how we can collect the trailers, for example, from uh, from the intermodal hubs in Italy or the intermodal hubs in Scandinavia. Is there an option to connect uh, sorry to collect with uh, liquid natural gas trucks, for example, to reduce carbon emissions? Um, is there the option to collect with electric trucks? Uh, believe it or not, this is uh, this is something that, that uh, people are really looking into. Um, So I think given that a lot of companies are under pressure with carbon emissions and the whole carbon credit industry, which I guess is a side industry in in itself, um, I think that in the future we will see more transport companies put under pressure to find a solution intermodally uh, or at least one that is more carbon friendly. So I really think that we will see a bit more growth. I don't think it will be this year and I don't think it'll be next year but I think within five to ten years or at least by 2030 um, we should see More movements going by by rail than 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 that are currently uh, shipped uh, into Morley.
0: That's great to hear. So there's some positive pressure coming from this carbon credit system. I I think so. Yeah,
1: (laughs) I I like it so, Yeah, some 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 good is definitely coming from it. Yeah.
0: Good. So that leads me nicely to my final question for you, which is, what makes you proud to be part of this industry? (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a, that, that's again a very good question. Um, I mean, the industry in itself um, connecting people. I mean, that's essentially what uh, what we're all doing in this industry is it's connecting people. Um, I know we're physically moving products from one place to another, but by doing that, um, you're not only connecting people through a product, but you're also connecting people through a service. And I think for me, what makes me Proud to work in this uh, this industry is the fact that we are not only providing a service, but we're we're connecting Europe and we're connecting yeah okay we're we're connecting the world in 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 a, in a smaller aspect. Um, it's, it isn't just Europe; it's 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 the whole world. Because let's say for example, we're shipping medical products from the UK to somewhere in, in Europe. Well those medical products will then go on from Europe to somewhere else in the world and um, there's a real value in that because these medical products are helping save lives in, in other countries and and that sort of um, that satisfaction that you get from knowing that you are providing a service, you're, you're connecting people, who then provide a service to to ship a product that has some worth of value to it whether it's building a house for a family for example for shipping building goods uh, if it's shipping automotive parts for a car and um, the end result is always the same that it is uh, providing a service to someone so we are connecting with with people who are connecting with other people who are passing down our service to the end user almost so it, it, mm. For me, it's really, it's really the people aspect of it, so, and in, in transport, you you get to meet an awful lot of people in a very short space of time.
0: And that's definitely something to be proud of.
1: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm very proud of it, and I know everyone here is also very proud of it. So I think I can speak on top. Uh, I think I can speak for everyone in the industry that that's really one of the main motivations is uh, is connection, uh, connecting with people.
0: Yeah, and it's a good point that even if you are uh, connecting goods from one part of Europe to another, of course, that links into a global connection chain, which mm-hmm. is so important and vital for everyone around the world.
1: Yeah, I mean, we have to see past uh, you know just the end destination. Yes, we might be shipping from uh, Northern England to uh, to Southern Italy, but uh, it doesn't necessarily end there. And that's kind of what's exciting about it. You know, we, we, we don't know what's going to happen after it goes to Italy. Maybe it just gets consumed in Southern Italy, the product that we're shipping, or maybe then it's made into something else and that's then sent somewhere else to the Southern hemisphere of the world, for example, and then maybe it's used there. So it's, yeah. uh, it's very interesting, yeah, very interesting.
0: Well, Richard, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure speaking with you.
1: Yeah, you're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Rachel.
0: And thank you to everyone listening in. We'll be back next week with more Behind the Mask.